Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. This Valentine's Day, my wife and I decided to introduce our kids to one of the best movies of all time that somehow they hadn't seen yet, The Princess Bride. I can tell by your reaction that it's one of your favorite movies as well. And as we watched it, my kids especially, but my boys really caught on to this one line. It was the line when Inigo Montoya introduces himself and he says, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die, right? And after the movie, they were running around pretending to sword fight in the living room like boys do, and they were repeating that phrase. I must have heard it a hundred times this Valentine's Day, and each time they said it, I thought about that phrase and how much clarity Inigo Montoya had about his life. And I'm not saying revenge is a good reason to live, (laughs) but the clarity he had was compelling. I mean, in one phrase. You knew exactly what Inigo Montoya was all about. You knew who his goal was. You knew why he was on this planet. And I thought to myself, what would it look like to have that kind of clarity about why we're here? See, essentially, Inigo Montoya was answering the question every time he met someone. He was answering the question, who am I? Who am I? And so I'll ask you the same question. Who are you? Who are you? I remember back when we used to have get-togethers and parties, and every once in a while you would meet somebody new at a, at a get-together, and you'd introduce yourself, and you might ask somebody a question like, well, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. There's a lot of ways to answer that question, aren't there? I mean, you could say, you know, I'm a, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm a husband, or a wife, I'm a I'm a daughter. You could fill in the blank with what your profession is. I'm a, I'm a pastor or I'm an engineer. I'm a teacher. I'm a business person. I'm a plumber, an electrician. You could fill in the blank with um, uh, some of the things that you enjoy, some of the things you're passionate about. You, you might say, I'm a Padres fan. Okay? I'm a Padres fan now, by the way. After the Colorado Rockies traded Nolan Arenado, I'm out, right? And I'm in on the bandwagon Padres. Let it be known right here, right now, okay? Or you might say, yeah, yeah. The Dodger fans are like, come on, man, come on. Or you might say something like, uh, you know what, uh, here's some things I enjoy. I enjoy running. I enjoy reading. I enjoy coffee. I, uh, I like burritos. Fill in the blank, right? You, you might talk about some of the things that you enjoy. Let me ask you the question again. Who are you? Who are you? It might be one of the most important questions that we will ever answer. Because it gets to the heart of, of identity, who, who we really are, and the identity that we believe that we have in many ways shapes the way that we live. But the way that people answer that question of who am I has changed a lot over the course of time. See, in an agrarian society, sort of a pre-modern society, people would have answered the question, who am I, by saying, I'm a part of the whole. I'm a part of this tribe, or I'm a part of that family, or I'm a part of, of this group of people who take care of each other. And they would have talked about their part within the whole. As time moved forward, though, 
We had things like the Renaissance that was followed by the scientific revolution, which led to the Enlightenment. And then in the, in the Enlightenment, Rene Descartes sort of coined this, this quip, this phrase, I think, therefore I am. And, and it became a way that human beings started to answer that question of identity. I am what I think. We started to live a little bit more in our heads than we did in communities to a large degree. But then you had the industrial revolution that followed after that. And in so many ways, people started to answer this question of identity, who am I, by the part that they played in production, right? I I produce. That's a big piece of my identity. I I think in some ways, the way that people answered that question in the era of history known as modernity might be, I, I know, therefore I am. I have the information, therefore I am. That, that's sort of my identity. But in our, our age right now, in this moment that we find ourselves in right now, how do people answer the question, who am I? I mean, you think about it. I, I think our age has been coined an age of rugged individualism. And essentially, what most people want a unique individual. I am so unique, there's nobody like me. And to a large degree, that's true. But in so many ways, that's become the defining characteristic of our cultural moment. So phrases like, be authentic. Be true to yourself. And you do you. Are some of the most common phrases associated with identity today. And I think we live in a moment where answering that question, who am I, is as difficult as it's ever been. Because even some of the most fundamental answers to that question are now under attack. I mean, think about it. Categories like male or female are no longer categories that are universally accepted. But I think that's just simply anecdotal of of the whole. I I think it's just sort of a a sign to us that we have no idea who we are as human beings. And yet, that question, who am I, is the greatest driving factor to determine what kind of life we eventually end up living. I love the way the author and pastor put it. Here's what he said. He said, our identity is our sense of self and self-worth. It's our core trust and source of value and recognition. It's whatever we look to as our ultimate source of security and worth. And you think that question is important? Um, Self and self-worth, value, recognition, security, worth. And I think it's a difficult question to answer, not not just because of the moment that we live in right now, but some of you have been running from that question, who am I, for a long time because you don't like your answer to the question. I am my failures. I am what was done to me. I am defined by my past. I am passed over. I am not enough. I am fill in the blank. But here's what I want to do today. Would you lean in for just a moment? Here's, here's my goal today and here's my hope for today. I want to stare that question in the face. 
and I to sort of our surroundings and sound bites in order to try to answer it. I, I want to point you to scripture and I want to point you to the God of the universe who created you, who loves you, and who has an answer for that question that's true of every life in this space. And his answer is enough to define your life. So we have, if you have your Bible open again, Matthew chapter 3. Remember, we're in a series on discipleship. And what we said in week one was that discipleship or a disciple is someone who lives in God's kingdom under Jesus' reign. The, the disciples are people learning how to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And a disciple has three goals that they orient, orient their life around. Goal number one is to be, oh, I heard a few, to be with Jesus. That's goal number one. Goal number two is to become like Jesus. I, I hear it. I heard it somewhere out there. I'm, I, I count it, okay? Goal number three is to do as Jesus did, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do as Jesus did. And today we are looking at which is becoming like Jesus. And, and just like we did with being with Jesus, this is a two-part message, okay? So this part is going to be God's part. What, what, is, what is God's part in us becoming like Jesus? And then the next week, we're going to talk about what our part is in this. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. As, as we seek to hear who God says we are, the beginning point is so important, friends. Because <laughs> if we don't begin in the right spot, we will never end up in the right destination. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Okay, time out, time out. I love that we have John's response to Jesus's request to baptize him because it's what we're all thinking, right? Like, Jesus, why, why would anybody need to baptize you? And John says it. I think in so many ways, John is pointing out to us that Jesus isn't the savior that we expected. Jesus seems to be identifying himself, not with a God who sweeps before people in rash judgment, but one who associates with people who deserve to be judged. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you have your own Bible, would you circle that or underline that? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A few notes first about this text, and then I want to just dive in a little bit deeper. Number one, this is one of the best texts that help us nuance out uh, the idea or the truth of God being a Trinitarian God. You'll notice that all three persons of the Trinity are on the scene of history at the exact same time. The Father's voice of affirmation, the Son going under the water and being baptized, and the Spirit descending like a dove. 
This passage, I believe, is the death blow to the early heresy known as modalism. Now, modalism was the conviction that God is one and that he wears different masks at certain times. He shows up on the scene, sometimes as the son and sometimes as the spirit. The problem with that is all three persons are on the scene of history at the same time in this text. And at the baptism, his baptism, Jesus gets two things. Number one, he receives a gift, which is the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that more in the next few weeks. And he receives an affirmation. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice, notice that the affirmation is public. It's not just a feeling that Jesus had in his heart. It was an announcement from the Father as if to say, the one whom you've been waiting for is here. It's as though the Father said it, not just so that Jesus heard it, but so that everybody else heard it as well. And then he calls him agapetos, my agape one, is the way that you could translate that meaning that God's affection, the Father's affection towards his son is self-giving and it's others-centered. I love baptism. We see the universal love of God, for God so loved the world, made particular to Jesus, unique and special for him. So don't miss this. Don't miss this. It is good to know that God loves the world but it's transformative to know that God loves you. It's good to know that God loves the world. It's transformative to know that God loves you. Just a side note, there's only two times when we have the father recorded as speaking to the son and we know the words that he said. Both times, here and at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, the same phrase is used. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You think it's important? Let me answer that. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. About it, you guys. This affirmation of the Father's love, my beloved Son, comes before Jesus does anything significant. It's before he performs miracles, that, any miracles that we know of. It's before he feeds the 5,000. It's before he heals the lepers. It's before he raises the dead. It's before. And that's significant. Because the father's affirmation over Jesus was not based on something he had done. It was based on who he was. Beloved son. Don't miss this. That's not just true of Jesus. That's true of you as well. See, Jesus is showing us that the life we're designed to live is grounded in the affection that we were created to receive. So some of you may be going, okay, well, Ryan, Ryan, are you saying that what the Father said over Jesus at his baptism, he says over us also? Yes, but with some nuance. Let me explain. Let me explain. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Paul says this. He says, in him, speaking of God, in him we have our being He's at the Areopagus and he says, it's even your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I mean, every person you meet is created by God and in some way a child of God. But here's the truth. Sin makes us estranged from our heavenly father. 
The story of the prodigal son is a good picture of the way that sin drives us away from our good father's home and love and protection and presence and causes us to try to make life and make a name for ourselves in a far off country that often ends up destroying our lives. Yes, sin makes us estranged from the God who loves us and we don't get to experience and enjoy his love because we've distanced ourselves from him. But through Jesus, God has made a way for us to be reunited with him. If you believe it, say amen. Listen to the way John described it. He said this, but to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, believe in his name, okay? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here today, please listen in because this is what God wants for you. He gave the right to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, see, believing leads to becoming. When we say yes to Jesus, we get to run into our father's open arms and we get to hear him say the exact same thing that he said over his son Jesus, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. If you think I'm off, just listen to the way that John said it later on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He said, oh, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That is what you are. By faith in Jesus, we become not just sort of universal sons and daughters of the king, but we become particular, unique, his sons who get to, and daughters who get to experience and live in his love and his goodness and his presence. And friends, that's enough to define a life. That's enough to shape a life. And it comes before you do anything. Ah, ah which means it's also present after you've screwed up. Amen. Amen. Would you write this down? God's love is designed to be the foundation of our lives. God's love is designed to be the foundation of life. Yes, love shapes identity. We live, as followers of Jesus, we live from love, not for love. We live from love, not for love. And I love the way that Dale Bruner put it. He said this, great scholar. He wrote, if we know this, we know the most important fact in the world. If we know this, we know the most important fact in the world. Because we know that we are safe. We know that we are wanted. We know that we are chosen. We know that we are secure. We know that we are enough and knowing Who we are always precedes knowing how to live. Because the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, please hear hear this. The story we tell ourselves about ourselves will always determine the way that we end up living. That's why we're talking about identity in the context of discipleship becoming like Jesus. Now, let, let me try to get in there and that I think some of you might be asking. You might be saying, oh, gosh, I, I know that the Bible says that I'm a beloved child of God, but I don't feel that way. I know that the Bible says that I'm a beloved child of God, 
but I've got a whole list of reasons why I know that's not true. I've got past hurt in my life. I've got addictions. I've got holdups. I've got sin. I've got thought patterns. I've got all sorts of things, Ryan, that you have no idea about. And so when you say I'm a, that we are beloved children of God, I can believe that's true for everyone else, but I can't believe it's true for me. What I want to say to you is actually what the scriptures say about you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Did you know that the scriptures say that you are no longer a sinner? You are a saint that you have been made holy, that you have been forgiven, that the God of the universe calls you his own. I think maybe an analogy might be helpful, okay? Uh, consider a caterpillar, all right? I wish I had one here, but I don't. So consider a caterpillar. If you were to take that caterpillar to a, a biologist and ask her to analyze it and describe its DNA, here's what she'd tell you. She'd say, I know this looks like a caterpillar to you. <laughs> and we go, because it is. But scientifically, according to every test, including DNA, this is fully and completely a what? A butterfly. A butterfly. That God has wired into that caterpillar the DNA of a butterfly, and one day will come onto the scene of the earth, and it will be shown to be a butterfly. It is in essence a butterfly and one day the behavior and the attributes and the look will all align with its reality. And so is true of you, friends. As a follower of Jesus, God has given you the DNA of righteousness. We and you are saints and nothing will make us more righteous or more loved than we already are right in this moment. So here's the truth. God is asking you to join him in what he says is already true about you. And that's what discipleship is. Would you write this down? Discipleship is the journey of becoming who God says you already are. Beloved, discipleship is the journey of becoming who God says you already are. You are the beloved Friends, please hear me on this. God affirms us just as we are. He accepts us without condition. After all, the scriptures teach that when we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. But don't mistake that to mean that God winks at our sin, that God turns a blind eye to the way that we cause destruction in our lives and the lives of others, that God acquiesces to our mediocrity. Absolutely not. He does not applaud in our sin. He calls us to repentance like a good father, like a good parent would when they see their kids destroying their lives and the lives of others. No, he calls us to repentance. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to discipleship. But catch this, he begins, he begins with a simple, unconditional affirmation. You are my beloved son or daughter. And with you, I'm well pleased. And if we don't start in the right spot, we'll never end up in the right destination. 
And this is how the gospel starts to permeate every single part of our being. See, next week, here's what we're going to talk about next week. Next week, we're going to talk about how we can participate with the Spirit of God in growing to become more like Jesus, to be shaped and formed. But before we go there next week, let me dive into the way that I believe the enemy of your soul wants to attack the seed that the scriptures are sowing even right now today to allow you to believe that you really are a beloved son or daughter of the king. Three attacks that Jesus receives right after he receives this affirmation. It's no coincidence that right after Jesus' baptism, we read about the temptation that he faces. And you'll notice as we read through it, how it's all attached back to this word from God, his father. So starting in verse one of Matthew four, the scriptures continue, it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Time out. You think? I think what Matthew wants us to hear is he really was human, you guys. He, he wasn't partly human. He was fully human. So, yes, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you have your own Bible, will you circle that word, if, in verse 3? If you are the Son of God. I mean, we've all heard the announcement from the Father that you are. But did you notice what the enemy is trying to do immediately? See, sow seeds of doubt. There's no way that could be true. Maybe that's for somebody else. Certainly, it's not for me. And what the enemy or Satan or the devil wants to do in Jesus' life and in your life is try to get you to posture yourself instead of being in a position where you're just receiving. And go, this is before I've done anything. And after I've done bad things, before I've done anything to earn it, I am a child of God. And what he wants to get you and I to do is to move from a posture of receiving to a posture of earning and proving. Would you repeat this phrase after me? I'm going to tell it to you and then I'm going to ask you to repeat it. Here's the phrase. I can't earn love and receive love at the same time. Are you ready? Let's go. I can't earn love and receive love at the same time. They're fundamentally different dispositions. See, the moment we try to prove we're worthy of love, we start performing, and true love is actually out of reach in that moment. Why? Well, because people may love what you do, but you know well they don't love really who you really are. They just love your performance. They love the things you do. Your identity is grounded in trying to earn love. You've actually cut the knees out from being able to stand and to be loved unconditionally by God or by anyone else. And so that's why the enemy starts with this, well, if you are, prove it. And here's three ways you can prove it. Verse three, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, we've already been told that Jesus is hungry. 
we know that Jesus is able to perform miracles. So why not combine his need with his ability and solve the problem? Like why, why is it all that big of a deal to turn a loaf of, or a stone into a loaf of bread? I mean, if you were able to do that, I'd encourage you to do it. Why does Jesus resist? Well, it's interesting. I think we have to look at the way that he responds in order to see what's really going on. His response is, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes back to the tempter, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I think what Jesus is showing us and what he's showing the tempter, the devil, is, listen, I'm going to have to choose where I get my sustenance from. I'm going to have to choose the way I satisfy my appetites. And and I'm going to choose to go to God rather than to go to my abilities. I'm going to choose to to take control on my own. I think what Jesus is showing us is that in order to live into our given name of beloved, we have to reject the draw to self-sufficiency. Would you write that down? I started to think about that this week because Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I always think of that as scripture. And indeed, that is one of the ways that we get to hear the words of God. But as I started to think about that, it's Jesus had just heard from the mouth of God. What did he hear from the mouth of God? This is my beloved son. And I started to wonder, Are these the words that Jesus is applying to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3? Not just a a sort of God speaking through scripture, but God speaking love into our hearts. Is he saying, those words are my life, that, that, that belovedness is my bread? Is that what he's saying? Certainly it applies more widely, but not more narrowly, I'll tell you that. I think the anecdote to self sufficiency is to learn to receive rather than trying to earn or produce. So how are you trying to earn or produce? And actually putting yourself outside of being able to receive that you are beloved. Next, here's what it says, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are, there's that word again, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's, that, now, the, now the devil is up in his game. Because <laughs> he saw, oh, Jesus, if you're going to quote scripture back to me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to quote scripture to you. Out of context, but I'm going to quote it nonetheless. And Jesus said to him, shall not put the Lord your God, to the test. He quotes scripture back to him again. I think there's a lot of ways to look at this temptation. But I think once again, we see the the key or the insight is to look at Jesus's response, to put the Lord, your God, to the test. I think what Jesus is, is saying or what the enemy is saying to Jesus is, if God loves you enough, he'll catch you. If your father really is for you, you can take the dive. No big deal. He'll come through. And isn't it true that so many of us measure God's love for us based on the way we see him come through for us? God, you must love me because this person that I love was 
was healed. They were restored. God, you must love me because I, I got this job and you're just blessing the living daylights out of me. So, so you must love me, right? God, you, you must love me because my relationships are working and things are going well. The only problem with that is when they're not, right? And so we flip the, to the other side of the coin and God, if you don't heal, you must not love me. And God, if you don't restore this relationship, you must not love me. And God, if you don't come through with, for the job, it means you don't love me. And I think what the enemy wants just to do is to, he wants to sow seeds of doubt to the love of, uh, uh, the love of his father that then Jesus would say, prove to me how much he loves me based on what he does in my life on a daily basis. And I just want you, don't miss this, please. Don't miss this. God has already proven how much he loves you when Jesus walked the hill of Calvary, went to the cross, spread out his arms, took all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame on his shoulders, was died and buried, and he buried your sin and your guilt and your shame in the ground, rose with forgiveness in his hands, and he did it for you. So, so we don't need to look at God and say, prove it. He points at Calvary and says, done. What, what, else, what else do you want me to do? What else do you want me to do? But we live in a prove it culture, don't we? I mean, I was watching my kids try out for baseball a few weeks, Saturdays ago, last Saturday. And uh, you know, they get three balls, three, three pitches to prove they can hit. Three ground balls to prove they can field. Three pop-ups to prove they can play outfield. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. And in so many ways, isn't that just the world that we live in? We live in a prove-it world. And I think what Jesus would want us to hear today is that everything that needs to be proved already has been on Calvary's hill. Therefore, you don't have to test. You can rest. Rest. Would you write this down? We have to refuse the temptation to test our worth to test our worth based on our circumstances, to test our worth, how God comes through, or maybe we perceive he doesn't come through in the way that we want him to, that our worth was settled on Calvary. There's one final temptation, and here's what, the way it reads. Verse eight, again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The temptation, higher, higher, higher. More, more, more. More people underneath you. More people that will serve you. More, more people that you get to rule over. In so many ways, the temptation that the enemy puts in front of Jesus is so many lives, isn't it? Bigger, 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 more, more, more. People can serve me, and essentially, we get a snapshot of the way of power where we can get what we want, and it doesn't matter who it hurts. 
I think what Jesus is teaching us, would you write this down, is to deny the way of power. Deny the way of power. Self-sufficiency, testing our worth, and of power. Power is subtle, though. I mean, I mean, my guess is it, it doesn't mean that you have domination over the kingdoms of the earth. <laughs> but power is a subtle, twisted way of trying to get up on somebody else. It could be through humor or sarcasm that reminds somebody, oh, I'm, I'm just a little bit better than you. A condescending remark. Or we just try to push somebody down just a little bit so we can be inched up. Or maybe an, an unwillingness to be vulnerable with our emotions. Because if I can just build a brick wall, I won't be hurt. That's a power play. Maybe it's physically building up our bodies. I mean, I mean, no, I've fallen prey to this. I'm just kidding. I haven't. I'm totally joking. <laughs> but, but, or maybe it's manipulating people around us to try to get what we want. Or, or refusing to offer forgiveness because it means we lose power. See, the problem with power, though, is that it actually blocks us from experiencing God's presence because it's his power, God's power, shines through not our goodness and our power, and when we nail it, his power shows up where? In our weakness. If I have no need for God to fill, I have no space for God to invade. And if I'm unwilling to admit my weakness, I do not get to experience God's power. I love the way that Jesus answers this temptation. He says this, he says, we shall worship the Lord and serve him only, as if to say that the anecdote to power or the way of power is the way of worship. Because in worshiping, we're lifting someone else up. We're giving worth to someone else other than ourselves in worship we admit which is why it's so healthy to come to worship and to do so on a regular basis because we admit and we recognize the world does not revolve around me there is a god and it is not me i think in some way shape and form the enemy throws these temptations out to jesus because all temptation is a form of one of these three. Uh, they, they find their root in these three central temptations. And in a world wrought with the question of identity, if you are, fill in the blank, do this. In a world wrought with proving and trying to earn a name. As disciples of Jesus, friends, we are called to a counter-affirmation. To affirm we are, we are the beloved of God. Before we do anything, his, he is our sufficiency. We have approval in Christ. We can release selfish ambition. Would you write this down as we begin to close our time together? The life we were created to live is grounded in the love we were designed to receive. You cannot. It is not difficult. It is impossible. To live the life God is inviting you to live if you don't receive the affection that God is freely giving. I can remember when my wife Kelly and I first got married. It was one of the first checks that she was signing as a married woman. And instead of writing her married name, Kelly Paulson, she accidentally wrote her maiden name, Kelly Hester. And I can remember thinking, 
well, well you're no longer Kelly Hester, you're, you're Kelly Paulson now. Like, come on, let's get it together. But it turns out, changing your name takes some time. I, I mean, you've been, we've been so wired into this is my name, this is who I am. And I think for so many of you, you have been wired. You're, there are mental maps in your brain that tell you who you are and about you. So we're going to need to do some quote-unquote work into reprogramming our minds to be transformed through the renewing of our mind, that we are children of the most high God. That's why you got one of these bookmarks when you walked in. It's by Neil Anderson. It's a Who I Am in Christ bookmark. I just want you to soak in this this week. Keep it in your Bible and just look at it. Read it through. Read it through every morning. Remind yourself who you are in Christ. And the next time you're at a party or a get-together and somebody says, so tell me about yourself. What if you said, hello, my name is in the blank. And I am a child of the most high God, he calls me his beloved son or daughter. He has made me a new creation. In him, I have enough. I am enough. I need not perform, and I am made strong in my weakness. Who are you? <laughs> Who are you? And what if, friends, what if we live from that reality? Gosh, that has the power to change everything. Will you receive it? Will you rest in it? Will you let it give shape to how you answer the question, who am I? Who am I? I'm going to invite John Riley and one of our students to come up. We're going to celebrate baptisms today, but I just want to invite you to pray as they're getting in place. Remember, the time together in this series as we talk about the way, the way of being disciples of Jesus. We're asking every week throughout the week. Number one, what is Jesus saying to me? What is Jesus saying to me? Number two. What does it look like to be obedient? What does it look like to trust him, to respond to his invitation? Number three, who can I tell? Who can I tell? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your goodness, your mercy, your love. Thank you for calling us beloved. God, I pray that for the people in this space, today, this morning, who are doubting that, who have a hard time just receiving it rather than earning it or proving it, who look at their life and try to find evidence for the fact that it can't be true, it can't be that good. Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, would you speak into those lies with your truth today? Would you bring freedom? Would you bring hope? Would you bring life? Your words are life. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.